we weren't really getting together as much, and it it wasn't really a conscious thought at all. It was just I had all these demos that were just sitting around, and I had picked ten and finished them, you know. So there was like there's it wasn't really that planned. It was just I'll finish these ten and just put it out and do something completely different, more electronic, more just using different. I heard someone say once that like an artist can only paint one picture and then they just keep switching up the palette and switching up the colors and yeah. stuff like that so i'm just switching up the colors a little bit but it's probably just the same thing i thought it was really different but it's probably just the same thing underneath it all the skeletal structures <laughs> the, the instruments are really the yeah. things that are changing yeah i mean the sonics the sonic stuff is changing but i think the feeling and the meaning is is still i, I don't think i can really get away from writing like sarcastic subversive pop yep. I think all of my favorite stuff has gravitated toward that, and that's just what I'm really attracted to, and that's just what naturally comes out when I sit down to write. I mean, especially now. Yeah. <laughs> now that the world is just, falling apart around us. Yeah. It was, and it felt really cathartic. I don't know how else to say it. It just like had to come out. And since then, I've been able to get back to work with the band, and like we're writing new songs together, but we were just really at a point where we were like burnt out, you know, and just kind of sick of touring and sick of the process, the music industry, man. It just like beats you down. I had to like take a step back and like re remember why I like to do this. So, really, sort of like distill it to its core pieces and yeah. kind of kind of rebuild it from there. I think you just have to keep doing stuff differently just have a different process to get to the same place of like release the songs were started with the expectation that these were going to be so so glow songs i don't know i don't i don't think i thought of them as that i think we have such a weird process that we write together we're all brothers in the band and we just like actual brothers we're actual yeah. brothers yeah i mean our band if no, we like, get hey, if i brothers, to give yeah. it the big backstory our band started in 1991 I was like maybe three, three or four. And is that true? Yeah. Our parents got divorced. And so. What's a band look like with a three year old in it? We had leather jackets. We had drums. We listened to The Clash and then Big Audio Dynamite and The Beatles and Buddy Holly. And you looked like the Ramones. Madonna and the Jackson Fives and the Ramones. And we were just digging through. Our parents luckily had good taste in music. Yeah. So we we're digging, digging through their record collections. And that didn't really change. I mean, it's kind of sad, but we just kind of got a little older and did the exact same thing for 20 years. When, like, 90s, you know, it was the early 90s, so the pop music was all kind of good. And I think I think it was kind of a golden yeah. age, you know, and we were just obsessed with Green Day and Nirvana and all those bands, uh, early, early 90s hip-hop, and that really shaped our musical identity with our parents' record collection. Yeah, we were a 90s band. I mean, we were four years old, but we're not like retro 90s. We're not of the millennial throwback 90s. We're OG you're 90s. Not, you're not ironically net, like <laughs> yeah, Netflix show no, version of the 90s. There's nothing ironic. And that's I think that's why we didn't really take off in the beginning of our band. I think our first album came out 2007, and I think it was a little too earnest for people. And within, within the immediate New York scene... We kind of had to start our own scene, and that's we we contributed a lot to the DIY yeah. thing that was going on there. It's so. interesting to hear you say that you're earnest because 
you know, for a lot of, especially too earnest, there's a bunch of different impulses at play here. I mean, one, you know, when you're, especially like when you're a teenager, you wear your emotions on your sleeve. Right. That manifests itself as very just like mm-hmm. risk cutty poetry. <laughs> But at the same time, having listened to a lot of punk rock and coming up through that scene, I mean, that doesn't that make you a, a little more sarcastic? Doesn't that make mm. you want to sort of fight against the earnestness? Like I was, I was talking to somebody about this recently. This might be different for you, mm. somebody having grown up on the East Coast. But like when I was growing up, I refused to listen to Bruce Springsteen. Right. Oh, well, that's that's an East Coast, West Coast thing. I yeah. think the Bruce thing. Is- I mean, I love, I love one him to- now, but he right, was like cause... he was too earnest for me. Yes. And as a teenager, I hated Bruce. Yeah. You know, I hated Bruce. But I just had this moment when I was like 19, 20, and I just got it. And I, you know, completely fell in love with But you didn't feel like you needed to sort of like cage things in sarcasm and irony and... Oh, I did. I did, did personally. Yes. But, but, but you were still incredibly earnest at the same time. Well, I think sarcasm can be earnest. I don't mm. think... I think irony is different. Yeah. I think irony is kind of like you're removed from something and you're devoid of human emotion to an extent because you're parodying us. I have a problem with irony, but not sarcasm. I think sarcasm can be subversive. And yeah. that's, I really do like that. Descendants, a suburban home is a perfect example of just, you're saying one thing, but you kind of mean the opposite. And it's, I have a lot of songs like that that I wrote. You feel like the fact that the band had been this unbroken timeline, that that might have hampered you or like arrested your development as a songwriter? No, I just think that people in, at that time didn't really turned away from what we were doing a little bit because I think in that time, 2006, seven, New York was very much like... Post-strokes. Post-strokes, too cool for school. Like if you're showing any sort of, we can maybe change the world with our subversive stuff. Like it's laughable. Like we care about what we're doing, (laughs) you know, like let's fucking fuck art. Let's dance. You know, that sort of mentality was a little premature for because, you know, everything comes in waves and we were just like in the middle of two waves. No we jam Econo at that point. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was all art rock and like yeah. um noise noise rock. That was like electric six era. Mm-hmm. Like that that it was like the height of indie rock irony at mm-hmm. that point. And you know, the city was still kind of gritty around the edges in some places and we were able to do a lot with that in terms of setting up all these DIY venues, the you know, Market Hotel and Shea Stadium eventually yeah. after that. And we did and just like, you know, Death by Audio was in its early stages and all of these little venues were just popping up and even though it wasn't our type of music after i mean in the beginning mostly noise stuff we were really accepted into that scene the all ages scene and it was just like this is where we belong after trying to make it over here on the lower east side like you said strokes runoff kind of by the time i moved here 2000 three a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff abc no real like the real like punk like uh-huh. all ages punk stuff was already kind of on it was fizzling out. out yeah i mean we went to those shows as kids because yeah. I'm, I'm from new york and we all grew up here we're originally from bay ridge but our band moved i mean our family moved about 28 times even before i went to college within the boroughs? within just the tri-state area yeah, yeah like uh, that's a whole nother story but a lot of different places you know we used to always go to shows in the city Right over here, Avenue A, shows in the park, Tompkins, C-Squat, and there was an old venue, Wetlands, that did matinees. It closed on September 11th. To be honest, you know, my first couple of years in New York City were kind of a a bit of a blur of, like, seeing shows in really weird venues. I don't know how much of that even exists anymore. I don't know how much of it's just that, like, I'm just not in that point in my life anymore. It will always exist. And that's kind of like when we we had a reinvigoration when we found this small DIY scene that was we helped to 
to contribute to. And it was just like, yes, this is rock and roll. This is the, the timeline that must go on. Kids that can't get into venues because I was 19, you know, when we started the band yeah. are throwing their own shows and starting their own thing. And that was like really great. I think one of the things that New York sort of has going against it, and this is just human nature, but is that we have a tendency to just to completely romanticize all of the old shit. Yes. There's that going on here. You know, New York is, you're probably not going to get stabbed, Mm -hmm. but maybe all of the cool shit is kind of gone now. I mean, you know, we're here in this building, (laughs) but not too far from the Bowery. really, I mean, yes, nostalgia has always been a thing since the 1920s and looking back. But then in the 1970s, the era that we glorify so much as, you know, in rock and roll, they're probably looking back to But but you've been in New York for your entire life. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you've seen it go through changes. I mean, do you find... This is definitely... It definitely feels like now... I mean, I think maybe it's my own internal paranoia, but I think that we're at the... At a strange point in culture where just we've experienced everything. Yeah. (laughs) And... um, Yeah. It, it to me post I, I, I try to pull myself back from thinking that we're just at the end of culture yeah just at the end of it <laughs> everything yeah. the end of the road like it really does feel like we're living in the future completely and we've you know everything is a reference to something else yeah i mean everything is always been to some degree right yeah there's also that yeah <laughs> and that's when we started the band i had that's what the so-so glows mean it's like so-so glow like you try to recreate the original glow of something without the authenticity of what made it real like we're living in a so-so glow generation we said that, and that was 10 years ago yeah. so that's sort of like a little a, like a richard hell play there yeah i love richard hell to call your band that to to couch it in that i mean mm-hmm. is that counterproductive Yes, it it is and it, it but it's self-awareness and I think while you're admitting that the mentality of the social glows is a very it's almost too self-aware for its own good. It's like we create a slang that means it's it's pointing the finger out but it's also pointing the finger in at the same time and I think there's power in that, but I think that it's a dangerous Road. It's the Stiff Records mm-hmm. motto, right? Fuck art, let's dance, right? Yeah. It's hugely problematic if you get too caught up in that if you get too caught up in your sort of place in the world and whether or not you're trying to do something new when at the end of the day i mean you're playing rock and roll music right mm-hmm. so you, you just want to you, you want to play something that sounds good on a record you want to play something that people come out to the shows and and have a good time at it's kind of it was kind of like also the meaning of the social glow is kind of like don't take yourself too seriously. Like it's an anti-pretension thing. But you started off in such an earnest place and you were <laughs> yeah. taking yourself pretty seriously early on. That's right? true. That's true. That's true. Well, yeah, that's why it's as much as an external yeah. diss as it is an internal right. self-awareness. Try to combat that type of behavior because we call ourselves social glows. We're the social glows. That's a double-edged sword of punk rock, right? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. You want to be sort of like like snotty and ironic, but punk mm-hmm. rock takes itself so goddamn seriously. Yeah, too seriously. I always go back to a conversation. I had uh, Sean Nelson from mm-hmm. Harvey Danger on the show. Mm-hmm. I asked him like at the height of your success, like, whether you had any regrets. And he said, well, you know, we, we went on Letterman mm-hmm. and... Paul Schaefer and the orchestra offered to back us up on a song. We didn't do it because it wasn't like cool enough. It wasn't like mm. punk rock enough. And I just, mm. I, I regret not having done that. That's the sort of downside of that ethos of there are certain decisions I won't make because it just feels like mm. it's selling out or it's right. not cool. Mm-hmm. I think that can be super trapping. I think, I don't know if we struggled with that sort of thing, but I think to an extent we did. I think, you know, doing this for the first time in your life of, of, of being a, a solo artist mm-hmm. and having like, again, like your family, your family is in the band and going out and doing this on your own is sort of giving you 
an opportunity to kind of rethink every aspect of the process? A little bit, yeah. It's 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 coming from a different place. It's it's a it's a totally different process. The glows is is much more like either we'll write from scratch a total freestyle thing. Yeah. It's a total democracy, and. Even if one person writes more of, of a song of a particular thing, it'll always be finished and sealed together. Some songs not, but other most of them. this is just kind of yeah, just do whatever, just do whatever I want. A lot of these songs do feel kind of like just I just blah, vomited them out. Like maybe they could have <laughs> used an editor or <laughs> no? I think I'm I'm pretty. I I, I worked with Adam Reich, who's. Mm. Uh, our producer in the shadowy fifth glow. So you weren't you weren't and, doing uh, it entirely no, by not, yourself. I, I was doing the the beginning alone, and then you know mixing it with him, and he rings me in a little bit. I don't know what to say about it. I I think I I was able to go a little more crazy lyrically with it, and and not be confined to like a few bars here, a few bars there, yeah. you know, and just kind of like work with some new new sounds. And I think that will influence the glows in the future. I've been producing some other friends' stuff. You write them, you're able to sort of sit on it for a little while, you're able to, to, to play around with it without outside influence for a while in a way that you weren't. I mean, it sounds like the, the band is really just kind of a, a live experience. So it's like whatever, you know, w- whatever's created within in those confines. But Also, we're brothers that know each other so well. Yeah. And, and when someone almost finishes your thought, finishes your, yeah. your sentence, like you can also get worked up into a frenzy. And we get, we get worked up into a frenzy. And not that I don't like that creatively. It actually helps in a lot of ways. But it sometimes takes long. And I just, for this particular thing, I wanted to put something out quick. If the nature of it is like performing it live and, and having it almost be like, not improvisational, but, but being mm-hmm. written on the spot, I would assume mm-hmm. that that would be a, a faster process. Yes, but we're all the same type of particular. And, and it's very much like a board that you have to get your ideas through. Yeah. You got to make sure it's cool or it's good or sincere and true to what you want to do. And when, when you just kind of, that it just takes a lot of time to shape something with more than one person. I'm so grateful for it. It's an amazing process, but this year was too tough for me. I just needed to, it's out. <laughs> I have a sister and I assume one of the upsides of being a band with your siblings is like nobody in the world is better <laughs> at calling you out on your bullshit than yes. your siblings. I think the first social glows show me and Ryan got into a fist fight in the street after the show, calling each other bullshit. Like you're bull. Cause we're trying to unload the gear and neither of us wanted to do it or I didn't want to do it. I got drunk and he was like, all the stuff you preach about us, you know, community and all this stuff. And you don't want to even unload the gear. Like it's just going to be me unloading it. And it was, he was probably right, but that was the first show. Was, do you feel like you get more shit being like the singer, the front man? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Because you always have to worry about being the prima donna. But I, again, no. from your brothers who are better at calling out your bullshit than anyone else in the world to be like, Oh, Mr. Fucking lead singer here is not mm-hmm. going to unload the gear. Yeah. You're not going to unload the gear. And I, you know, I've probably missed a lot of, a lot of loadouts. I've tried to make it up. I think we're kind of even. I think we're kind of even. Everything you had done up till now is really was was is filtered through you know through other people. Mm-hmm. I think I can't say that that the other stuff wasn't a true genuine uh, reflection of self because I think that everything that I've put out is where I was at at that time. You know, and this is just like. And they're all snapshots of where I was at. Being sort of the front man, being the singer, yeah. you were able to. Yeah. I mean, it, it's coming from you largely. Uh, lyrically yeah a lot of the songs um this is just like it's cool as you know to put out records and you just have a timeline of where you were at and this is my 2016 
into 17, maybe a little bit sprinkled before. That's just where it was at. It was a weird time. So what's sort of the, the overarching theme? I mean, I've listened to the record a couple of times. I, I will say the first track is like, feels like an Op Ivy song to me. Oh, that, that's, Officer, that's a I mean, like, you know, I mean, even yeah. like the name of it. If Op Ivy was electronic. There's politics on it. Obviously, you're dealing rap. with some, a lot of like, it sounds like you're kind of dealing with a lot of personal shit through the mm -hmm. record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Op Ivy's always been an influence. I mean, Jesse Michaels, lyrically. We we got the opportunity in the Glows to make a video with him. He did one of our music videos, and which was really surreal because he was always a shadowy myth. I was in L.A. and because he lives out there now. I tried to get him on the show, and he's just like, basically said, like, I, 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 he doesn't really like to do interviews. Like, yeah. He just, unless, like, unless he's got something to promote. He likes to let the art speak for himself. Mm-hmm. Well, respect him. He's yeah. the true soul, you know, yeah. of, of that band. And Even like that common writer stuff is great. It's good. Like, yeah. It's it's great. Yeah. But pre-internet, Jesse Michaels, that mythology, yeah. you know, was just I grew up so in the East Bay. Deep. So like, I mean, I grew up in New York. So yeah. it was, it's heavier from across the coast because yeah. you have this like. Yeah. By the time I feel like the here. New York West Coast romanticism yeah, is yeah, similar yeah. to the New York London yeah. romanticism in that like. It goes both What's ways. What's going on over there? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, that's cool. There's cool yeah. stuff. By the time anybody heard about it, the mm -hmm. band didn't exist anymore. Right. By it was two years. Yeah. It was, and then, and then he disappeared, and he's gone yeah. for ten years. Who is this guy? What and like, happened? And that record it? was like that was not a record, right? That was just like a collection of all the stuff yeah. they did. And then Rancid blows up. Mythology was so much better. I, I really do miss the mystery of stuff pre-internet of artists, especially. You can't, you can't really do that anymore. To work with him, that was sick, and it's a high compliment that you compared it to that. I remember in the early stages of our band, when I'm getting back to the, we were too earnest for the time, we had a wave of post-strokes run over, yeah. someone said we were like playing a show with this like model, these model bands, this uh, all-male models, and they were like, they heard our band, and they were like, you guys sound like God Ivy, in a way like that it was really bad, you know, and it was, they were laughing at us. I took it as a compliment. Do you feel like you've gotten to a point, though, where you're able to channel all, all of the personal shit that you're dealing with on record? Is it a form of catharsis for you? For sure. I think I think it always is. I think a lot of it is... I like. I really like songwriters that there's like three or four different ways to look at the song, different angles, you know? At first glance, it could be a personal song, but then if you read the subtext, maybe it's a political song. And then if you read even yeah. deeper, maybe it's about something that you, you have to go and look up. I love artists that use their whatever medium as like... It's like having different angles. It's like a dodecahedron yeah. or something like a shape that you you can turn around and see. Depending on whatever context you're ringing from it, whatever day you're having, like you can read it in an entirely different way. So a lot of them are personal songs, but they're also political statements, I think. I was here for the election of Donald Trump. What I saw and what I felt from New York was just you got like someone just punched us right in the gut. Sucker you know? punch. Yeah. Not only did Trump ruin democracy in america there's three things that really bother me personally about trump aside from the racism sexism misogyny and the fact that he's just disabling democracy in i mean those are in america those are three very large caveats those are big ones but aside from that just aside from that the three things that really bother me one he ruined like the new yorker that can exaggerate and use yeah. hand signals and and kind of like just kind of say 
trust me, nobody knows this. This is a, the best spot. Like yeah. this is good pizza, right? Yeah. Go there. They're they're good. They'll take care. That character is like tainted. No, it's forever tainted. And I liked that character. I liked yeah. the like verbose kind of like braggadocious kind of trust me on this one. Yeah. I know this. A little crazy Eddie maybe. Yeah, I liked that. And the second one is he killed Leonard Cohen. And I have an authority that he actually personally murdered Leonard, Leonard Cohen. Cohen. Yeah, I mean, I'll believe it. I will believe it. For the Trump election, the closest I had come personally was um, my first time in New York City. So I'm from California. The first mm-hmm. time out here, I flew into the blackout. Oh. 2000. You remember what? I was out of the city for oh, that. Okay. I was on vacation. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Remember like it. I flew I, into I was, it. I felt bad. There was a sense of people helping one another out. New York is that kind of city. People are not nice here. But they'll tell you what if you're lost, where do you need to go? Sure. They won't they won't ask you nicely, but they'll get you there. When push comes to shove. Yeah. Sucker punch is a good way of putting it mm-hmm. for Trump's election from the mm-hmm. standpoint of like we did we just didn't see that coming, right? Mm-hmm. Like we were all kind of blindsided. But yeah. And I remember walking around the city and it was just sort of like everyone was like Charlie Brown, you know, with like a cloud over their head. So when something like that happens and there's this big sort of external thing, I mean, is that a situation where you feel like, all right, I need to get my words down on paper. This is something that's going to make me sit down and try to like for at least make one, something good come out of this. For that one, it was so tough. Um, I think in, in terms of all trauma, personal, political, social, anything, there needs to be a moment where you process it. Like you feel it and then you process it. And then like, it's like inhaling and exhaling. Yeah. Like the exhale is like you're doing something. You also need a certain amount of distance between you and yeah. in order to really like. That was, it was really too close. Yeah. But I think what I did the night after is I did go over to Risha's and I was working on this. Yeah. We were mixing it and adding some stuff and neither of us wanted to do it. We were, he was sitting on the floor all day depressed. Mm-hmm. I was crying, you know, but we just did it because we had to do it. I can't say that it was. A direct response. It just felt like normal. The songs were written. So what we're hearing on this Some record, of the songs were written, yeah, leading up to it. Is there anything that we're going to hear on this record that is a direct result of that? Uh, yes, I think so. This is like the perfect distillation of fuck art, let's dance, and like all of this sort of like external stimulus is there's a song in there where it just like everybody get on the dance floor like mm-hmm. you know like gay straight trans oh everyone. yeah that's officer yeah we're in this together that was written before but i feel like it's more important now yeah. and i think that we need earnest earnest songwriting we mm-hmm. need empathy we need honesty now and we need we need people to just take that back because kill them with kindness that is my favorite thing we really need to just not be afraid of each other and I think that's where all ignorance and hatred comes from. It's just not being exposed to something. It's living isolated. And the best part about rock and roll, music, punk rock, is that it can draw all these different kinds of people. No matter what your struggle, personal, political, anything, it can bring you together and make you feel united. That's the power of of rock and roll and that's timeless i still believe in it i mean i'm a little more jaded than i used to be but i'm never gonna not believe in that i think that the second you stop believing in that you're you're really you're really fucked obviously people will refer to you as a punk band and i read an interview i don't know if you were like pushing back on that i don't know if that's a right way to put it but i guess the question is like 2018 like what is that punk is not like a leather jacket or yeah. bar chords or anything like that i think i i think 
Oh, I was talking about the negative aspect of that we've gone so far and culture is gone and there's we're living at the end of it. I think there's also a positive spin to that. And, and that is that we can pull little bits of what we like from different stuff and put it all together. It's like we're living in collage world now. And there are elements of punk that were like super bro-y and super like aggro. And we can leave that behind and yeah. we can just pick the, the good stuff and, the, and move forward. It's, it's evolving and it, and it doesn't mean it's not a genre. It's never been a genre. You know, it's, it's never been a genre since Woody Guthrie or, Blind Willie McTell or Big Mama Thornton, you know, like they were punks, you know, Big Mama Thornton was like trans rock and roll star, like, you know, before the, you know, had to keep it like down, you know, it seeped through the cracks of history. Now we can see that it's not a, a leather jacket. It never was. But but the people that that carried on the the ideals it's just a timeline that keeps going. This sort of relates back to technology in an interesting way. I'll talk to older people about something like, you know, Spotify. The downside of it is that it, it strips context. When you had to when you had to work to find out about a band, when you had to work to go get that record, you yeah. invest yourself in it. You're doing the homework, you're sort of like going and figuring out the history. All of that's gone. Or to some degree. Yeah, and reading the lyrics and opening yeah. up the liner notes and seeing the, the story. And projecting, Op Ivy is a great example of like projecting your own ideas and stories of this band onto something. But the upside of it is that like there's just, kid today is listening to hip hop and punk rock and, and everything else with no preconception with the same open ears. And I think right, that- just take it for what it it's is. It's a beautiful thing. It is. People used to be like, I listen to everything but country or, yeah. or metal or something mm-hmm. like that. That just doesn't- doesn't exist anymore. That's that's good. Yeah. There's always been like those kinds of open-minded people in terms of music, but I think yeah, a lot of people I grew up with, they're like haters, you know? Yeah. Like it's easier to pick out what you don't like when it's not all presented in the same way. How does this manifest itself differently when we're actually sort of like going out playing, promoting it? Hmm. What does it look like? So are you going to actually like do a tour? Are you going to go out there, put yourself out there? Do you have a band? I'm still figuring that out. There's no tour booked now. I've played maybe five or six shows as in the solo thing. And every one of them has been different. In one, I just kind of rapped and had some back background singers. Fine, rapped. <laughs> put on the track and okay. just sang to it. Okay. More, more, um, it was like karaoke, really. Yeah, I did karaoke to it. <laughs> I wanted to have, have rapped, but... You know what? You're still young. Yeah. There's time. I've got time. I've got some time. And another one, I just kind of did electric guitar. Yeah. I like the fact that it can just metamorph, metamorphosize? Manifest itself. Manifest itself in, in whatever. many yeah. different incarnations and many different styles. I think that that gives more power to the songs you know if the songs can just try on different clothes i'm cool with that so i think for the record release i'll do a mixture of both like i'll have some some of the electronic stuff programmed and then a live band i don't know but that's what i'm thinking september 28th is the record release how long have you been orange drink i've been orange drink forever i got it right here in my bag i've been orange drink since 1987 here let me get it out just put lay it all on the table, physically, metaphorically. It's a pow- it's like tang, sort of. This is your life saving um... orange drink. I kind of want to leave it mysterious about what the okay. orange drink is, but it's also already on the internet, so I should yeah. just talk about it. This unit not labeled for individual sale. Mm, that's all you got. No, this is like this is what keeps me alive. I was born with a super rare genetic disease called homocystinuria. 
and I lack an enzyme to break down protein. So I've, I can't eat protein. I was born mm, pretty sick, but it turned out fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's all relative. This is my orange drink. So that's why my name is Alexander Orange Drink. Because this is just all of the amino acids that I can break down with the yeah. two that I can't extract it. It's like a, pro, a glorified protein shake, but customized for people like me. How much of a defining characteristic is this? Up until now, I've never really gone public with it, so it hasn't really been. Yeah, maybe the solo project is a way of maybe bringing more awareness to weird diseases. Do you feel that it has defined you to some degree? I mean, there, for sure. There's a small aspect of like you need to take this powder. Well, I have to take this powder and I have to not eat anything with, I can't eat meat, cheese, tofu, grain. Um, you just I, named I, all the food. That's yeah, like all the food. I, I, can eat fr- I eat fruits and vegetables. Okay. You drink whiskey. I drink whiskey. I, I eat, I'm like a vegan without the protein. So, like, no seitan, no tofu, no any of the stuff that's protein, beans. And that has defined me. Like, I, I think that there's always like a path that leads you to music being a, a saving grace, like something that you know, lifts you up. Any struggle that you have, there's a reason that people gravitate towards hip hop, punk rock, music, art, you know, like for those, I'm not talking about just people that like music, but people that are saved by it, you know, and, and really like without this, I don't, I'll be insane or I'll kill myself or something like that. And I think having this life threatening disease at a young age, you know, being aware of it at a young age. I There's something in that, that I was really pulled towards music and creating this. And it was the only thing that ever made me feel kind of normal. To some degree in control, too. In control, right? yeah. There are things in your body, you know, when you're able to create art, you're able to have full control of it. Yeah. It's kind of like, I can relate to people with eating disorders a lot you know because it's similar control it's similar like everything that you eat is kind of killing you in a way there's very little research about what i have just because it's so rare like i think the oldest person who's living normally with it is maybe in their upper 30s 40s because the diet wasn't discovered until the early 80s or late 70s and i was born in the 80s in New York. And at the time of my birth, there was only maybe 12 states that tested for it in newborn screening. And New York, thank God, was one of them. But New Jersey wasn't, you know. It was very new. So blah, blah, blah. Saying that the oldest person who has this is in his or her upper 30s. Living normally and, and yeah. without any complications, I think. That sort of puts you on a potentially finite timeline or at least something mm-hmm. that having to think about this every day, having to think about this every time, you know, you pull out the, the powder, it, you're kind of reminded of your mortality absolutely i think that having that mentality has made me have an urgency to create have like i can't stop i i feel like the clock you know time's ticking i need to do this quickly i remember like our first album i said to adam reish i was like we got to record these songs now because i'm not going to be around for a long time that was I was 19, (laughs) but I am living fine. I have had nothing, knock on wood, I've had nothing so far. It's just caused a lot of anxiety, personal like depression stuff, and everything that comes with feeling strange has come 
has played a part, but it's also like my superpower, you know? It's my fucking orange drink. Like the Soso Glow's title in that it's like a negative thing, it's also an empowering thing. And I think both the Soso Glow's as a title and Alexander Orange Drink do a similar thing in that. What do you mean by superpower? You know, it's my it's my unique thing. Like, yeah, I think I'm it's the like only one. Mutant. I'm the only one who's got it. Who's ever, <laughs> you know, played on fucking David Letterman sure. and put out a record. Yeah. <laughs> so that makes me feel good, but then I also, you know, think I suck at everything, and maybe I didn't deserve it. But that's uh, the dual side of no. Mine. I'm I'm happy to talk about imposter syndrome. This <laughs> is something that we talk about on the show all the time. Because that was like what, like 2012, 2013, 2013. I think. How does that happen? We were just pitched. And actually, this gets back to what we were talking about yeah. before, that I'm just going to burn my own CDs for the orange drink. And it's not going to it's going to be digital. And then I'm just going to burn CDs and sell them online. Earlier today, I watched a video of you on Letterman, which I didn't realize existed until earlier today. You guys are so happy. Like, I see you guys just... Because <laughs> we made like, it from the, from the DIY scene. You're like, like beaming. Ja, ja, ja. My friend from Ninja Sonic came up to me after that. And he was like, when you guys were on Letterman... We all made it. Like, that was all of us in the DIY scene. All the fucking punk rock. We're just going to get up here and, like, be too cool for school. No, like, you no, can't, no. Hide, you can't no, no, hide that because you were so happy. No, no, no. Yeah. It's, it was our, you know. We have more of the... I think another thing that turned people off to the social glows is that we had more... And I'm, we were hated on for a while in New York. And I think it's because... We have more of the hip hop mentality of like, I'm going to do this because I care about this and less of like the indie rock. Like I have guilt about this and I don't deserve this. I feel that internally. I don't think I'm good. <laughs> I think I'm guilty. But the external thing that we put out is like, yeah, this is our shit. It's yeah. New York. Yeah. You know, like, and that, that's probably why you're responding like that way. Like, well, they're, why are they happy? They're a punk band. Cause we're happy. Cause we're positive punks. We have depression. Yeah. We have self crippling doubt, but we get up there and we try to. That's it's like Bruce, you know, like you want to like inspire people. You don't want to put more negativity into into the shit, even though you are filled and riddled with it. All of my all of my heroes have kind of had this suicidal kind of rage, but then did have inspired in yeah. spite of it. Did going on Letterman change things at all? Uh, it made me feel good for a sec. <laughs> it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> going from burning your, your yeah, CDs changed, to it, we burned our CD we were unsigned. We had no label. We didn't have a booking agent at the time. We had we just burned our CDs. We had a manager who pitched it, who pitched it to someone they knew who worked at Letterman. They liked it. They were taking a chance. It was the last year at Letterman. They said, fucking, let's get these guys on. Yeah. We went on there with no record. You know, the record wasn't even pressed yet because we couldn't get a label to put it out because we shopped it around and no one thought it was cool enough or whatever. You didn't fit in some we put, like, we didn't cookie fit, cutter. We never fit in a box. Yeah. Like we're, we're too like... We're too pop for punk. We're too punk for pop. We're too indie for mainstream. We're yeah. too mainstream for indie. We've never, we've never fit. We've had some love here and there. All the super hip blogs didn't touch us for a long time. Pitchfork didn't want to cover us because it was like those guys. I don't know. <laughs> we were around at all the venues, yeah. you know? They're too hungry. <laughs> Yeah, they're just too something. They're too New York, mm. and everyone wasn't from New York or something. I don't know what it was. Yeah, I don't even care. It was we did so good for, and we're still doing fine for what we did. And I'm super grateful for everything that we did. We went on Letterman with no nothing. 
And then people were like, oh, they started to come to us. And then we licensed the record. So it did take us from here to there. It like, it took us to a place where it was like, oh, respect. Like we got respect of people from people who didn't, who otherwise would have just written us off as some other stupid band for you the band is something that you can always come back to yeah it's family we're family and like i think the reason that we're earnest without being i don't know how you said it before but we were like don't you think that what we were saying how how punk and earnesty was like a kind of a contradiction sure yeah Uh, and and that there's something i mean there's something very earnest about punk you mm -hmm. know joe strummer very Mm -hmm. earnest but like there's also something very sarcastic that if you go too far in the direction of earnestness mm-hmm. it's not yeah cool you can't anymore. go too far yeah. in either direction i guess it is something i can always come back to because it's my family it's my yeah. roots and like shea stadium doing that that was a people love that venue and people i think the right people like our band because it's family it's a dysfunctional family it's riddled with problems i think the people like the reason that our band survived and like has some respect is because our positivity isn't put on you know it's it's real it's like we've gone through a lot of shit as a family as brothers uh, you know and we've taken a negative situation which was divorce and all this other stuff and this shit and everything and turned it into something positive and that beams out and i think as we got older political stuff like all got like mixed into our propellers and it was just we're just always doing the same thing and like taking all the negative shit out and just saying okay like how can we like smile and kill them with kindness you know i think there's a lot of power in that as a tool as a as a political weapon and i think there's more power in it and straight negativity. Bands break up. Most bands have a, a finite timeline, but family, your family is always always family. I mean, do you feel like as long as you're making music that this is something that you're going to have to be able to go back to? I hope so. I'd like to. Like you were saying before, like when you fight and call out each other's bullshit when you're brothers, there's no other, or sisters or family, there's no harsher critic. And we get really, really harsh. I mean, we've been in physical fights that have broken each other's bones. My jaw was broken when we recorded our first album. But despite all that, we come together. And i it's always something that's going to be there as long as we're alive, hopefully. Who knows? I can't tell the future. But I think... It'll be something, you know, social goes forever. It's like Wu-Tang. You can't get, you can't get away from it. There you go. That was Alexander Orange Drink of the So So Glows. His debut record is out this Friday, September 28th. It's called Babylon. We'll also be doing a show at Coney Island Baby in Manhattan. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Tito at Clarion Call for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the show. If you like the program, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's iwildcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L-related information. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. And I think that's about it for this week, so stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L.